Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. This episode is part of the What the Fork DigiTalks by Ag Funder series that we've been hosting over the past few weeks via online webinars. Speaking with a range of industry experts, Ag Funder executives hope to help our investors and network to navigate the agri-food investment space during this time of crisis resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast is taken from one of the live recordings. So to kick things off, I've got a great session for you today to discuss the future of agri-food investment and a high-level look at the new trends we can expect to arise from COVID-19. So Blake, if you can give us a little wave, you're the principal at Alexandria Real Estate's Venture Arm and heading up its ag tech practice. So Alexandria's roots are in real estate and behind Blake, you can see a picture of their ag tech center, which is in Research Triangle Park. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fantastic facilities for ag tech startups and they also do some programming for them as well and we're very happy to count Alexandria as one of our LPs. And then for many, Dave Friedberg, give us a wave there from out of space. <laughs> you won't need an introduction. You are the founder of Climate Corporation, the digital ag startup that sold to Monsanto for a billion dollars in 2013. We actually owe you a lot as an industry because that was the deal that really flung ag tech into the venture capital spotlight. We've known Dave for years, since those early days. And last year, we helped you to announce your new investment business, The Production Board, on our podcast, Future Food. The Production Board is asset class agnostic investment company investing across farmland, production and technology. And joining Blake and Dave to lead the conversation is our own Rob Leclerc, who most of you will, of course, know. He's the founding partner of AgFunder and co-manages our investment business with Michael Dean. He's also a PhD with five degrees, but let's not get into that <laughs> now. Um, and if you want to know where all the toilet paper is gone, I, I, he's, I, hoarding, he's hoarding the world's toilet paper. So, Rob, you can take over. We've got a few cute noises in the background there. Yeah, so we've got some kids here. You may see hugging. You may see half-naked children running around. So (laughs) avert your eyes. So I'll start off really sort of from a high level. This is the first big crisis that's even deeply affecting agri-food investing, certainly in the last 12 years, and then certainly since the sort of the global financial crisis. And Dave, I thought maybe we'd start, you were building Climate Corp during the last world financial crisis and probably have some visceral experience of what that was like what the funding environment was like, what you were hearing in the investment worlds. Could you maybe walk us through or take us back to that time when you were running Climate and back to 2008 and 2009 and what was going on in investors' mind? How is it affecting your industry and how you're trying to operate? Like the business at the time, like any startup, was dependent on cash from investors, from VCs. And we had raised money in November of 2007 at Climate Corp. And then the global financial crisis hit in 08. And we were pretty well capitalized, but we were pretty aggressive in just being careful about our costs and making sure we had a real scalable and strong unit economic value proposition for our business before needing to raise additional capital. So I kept the team kind of pretty lean and small and kept costs down. And we didn't raise money again until 2011 after we had kind of proven our scalable ability to sell our services to farmers and make money from that. And then there was three term sheets. So it was actually a great time for us. Our Series B was a really great outcome for us. 
I think the same is probably true today. You know, if you're well capitalized, just giving yourself a couple of years of runway to get a really great business. There's always investors. There's so much capital out there still that's committed to venture funds that if you have a great business, you have a great value prop, you have great unit economics, it's scalable, good market, unique technology, you're going to be able to raise capital. I think it's just a matter of kind of being careful about managing costs during this downturn. So nothing really unique or unusual there with respect to what happened with us back then and what I think a lot of folks need to do now. The challenge arises when you don't have enough capital and you were expecting to get a venture round done in recent times. We are investors, several companies like that, and it presents a lot of different interesting challenges when you're not well capitalized at this point right now because a lot of folks are sitting out. And did you see that maybe some of your peers who are running startups, did they have a different experience than you did, particularly on the customer and demand side? You guys were obviously really starting to move into farming from Weatherbill. How did you see demand in that market versus maybe how other startups were seeing demand in other markets? Did you feel that you had some of the wind to your back or was it headwinds everywhere? Yeah, no, I felt like unaffected really. Like my memory (laughs) is... (laughs) that it didn't really affect agriculture at the time, the global financial crisis and the ability to build and sell services into agriculture. So yeah, I think it was pretty unaffected. Certainly consumer and enterprise businesses were challenged during the global financial crisis. And I think depending on the category and consumer today, and depending on the market and enterprise today, folks are facing all sorts of challenges. Gotcha. And then maybe just sort of another rollout question. I'll, I'll throw it over to Blake. And Blake, if you have any questions for Dave as well, let's take advantage of this. But for your own portfolio today, just sort of given some of those lessons, what has changed today from, say, January 2020 when you were looking at opportunities and making those investments? Yeah, I would say January 2020, there were a number of businesses that were optimistic that with a good business model and good success, they were going to be able to raise capital in Q1. And we had a number of deals fall apart as COVID took its grip. And I speak to a lot of venture capital friends and a lot of CEOs in Silicon Valley. And there's just story after story of signed term sheets being ripped up, deals being renegotiated down 50% or more. So a lot of folks are literally sitting out. I have several venture firm friends who their shop has literally closed up. Everyone's in kind of crisis firefighting mode with their existing portfolio. So there were a lot of companies that were expecting, based on their business performance relative to peers and what the market was telling them, expecting to get a deal done in Q1 or Q2 to fund the business and to help them fund operations. And that didn't end up happening. And so that's caused significant layoffs and restructuring and shifting strategy. The challenge with a lot of what people call ag tech businesses is that there's either a long sales cycle or a long R&D cycle. So if you're selling to farmers, you're selling to ag retailers, you're selling into these big companies, you're going to take several years before you perform. I mean, we often talk about the 10, 30, 90 adage in in farming adoption of new technology. It's like 10% of acres, 30% of acres, 90% of acres. So even if you sell to a lot of farmers in year one, it's not until year three (coughs) when you really see that revenue come through. So you're banking on some sort of capital to support the business before your product or service is really ramping to support your operations. The second challenge is all these long R&D cycle businesses. So if you're in seed technology or some sort of biotechnology or some sort of ag input technology or building hardware for agriculture, if you're a hardware startup or a life sciences startup, you're talking about a three to seven year R&D cycle before you're generating revenue. And so you've got kind of gated milestones along the way that you need to hit in order to unlock that next round of capital. And if the risk tolerance for what defines a milestone shifts like it has with COVID, then even though you're hitting your goals and even though you're moving your technology forward and you're now phase three of five, 
suddenly the investors aren't there because they're not willing to take on that additional risk. And so for those two reasons, the long sales cycle and the long R&D cycle, a lot of folks are in ag are a little more heavily dependent on venture than say an enterprise software or consumer business that can quickly ramp down costs and quickly sell to a smaller number of customers or whatnot. So there is this acute pain that I think is going to be experienced and is being experienced if the funding dries out, risk tolerances drop, given the long sales and R&D cycles for startups in the space. And then given that financing risk, is there particular subsectors in the market where you're like, maybe we'll revisit that market in 2021 and 2022, and we'll make investments in more, say, capital-efficient opportunities this year? Or are you not rebalancing at all? Or maybe the better question, are you investing? From an operating company perspective, that's definitely the only choice you have, which is to do less. And so we've got a number of companies that had a product portfolio, and it is now all about focus on one product, one market, get this one thing working. Even if that means you're now trading off valuation a year from now or revenue a year from now, the goal right now is survival the goal isn't to show that you're a platform. The goal isn't to show that you're a multi-product company. The goal isn't to show that you can expand geographies. The goal is to just survive. And so where can you continue to operate a business and build a business and survive? And so there's a lot of portfolio reduction going on at operating company levels, which allow them to kind of reduce costs and focus. From an investment perspective, I think I would say I'm relatively unaffected. I generally don't like markets where there's a lot of people doing the same thing, a lot of competition, a lot of the same stuff going on. So there are some markets that are going to emerge or are going to get flooded with capital and people and companies as a result of COVID in human health diagnostics and that sort of stuff that we were doing stuff and probably are going to avoid now just because it's going to get overcrowded and overfunded. There'll be a little mini bubble in diagnostics, I think. But generally, I think we've highlighted in a great way the importance of basic food security, moving away from luxury categories. There's a lot of ag tech companies that I would argue are probably more luxury food categories in the sense that they are high-end restaurants or the customers, or it's a high price point product that consumers feel good about buying. And we've definitely seen a back to basics, back to commodities shift during the COVID cycle where everyone's like, I need friggin' Rice Krispies and I need cheap calories and I need Soylent and I need milk and making sure that supply chains are robust and affordable. And so I do think there's going to be a lot of shifting in terms of where dollars have gone historically to some luxury category stuff that we're now going to kind of rethink some of the really important commodity and basic stuff. And that's going to get probably more capital and more interest here going forward. Basic food security, basic yeah. supply chain security, etc. Yeah, and I Great. think that's, that's a difference between today's and the credit crisis of, you know, over a decade ago is it felt like in the credit crisis coming out of that, you had a lot of really luxury products and luxury companies were doing well because that tier wasn't as impacted as much as the general. And it feels like today that's the opposite. Whereas the luxury is actually getting hit even harder because it's just their supply chains, their restaurants to Dave's point are not functioning. And it's really more, you go back to the familiar going back to the basics almost in terms of the consumer side of things. So I think that could be something that we see come out of this that is different than the last downturn. And Blake, and so just in general then, a little more to this point, how do you think this sector will bear in this downturn? What is your prognostication of what this looks like? And particularly compared to other asset classes, what does that look like? How do we fare? Yeah, I think compared to other asset classes, I think we fare well. And, you know, look, Alexandria's business model is to service, you know, life science and ag tech companies. And we think that those are really stable asset classes in general from a real estate side. And I think that will be the case 
through this as well. From a financing side, I'm expecting to see kind of a dropout on the edges. Kind of if I think of like, you've got your early stage angel investors, your traditional VC in the middle, and then your larger crossover funds. I think for 2020, we're going to see those two at the ends really come down. And then I think Dave's right on with the VC is the first instinct is to look to your current portfolio, make sure that every company you have is well suited to get through the crisis. And then next to look for new investments, really exciting activity where you think you can either make some opportunistic investments because the deal is a little bit better, the terms are better, or you're still just really excited about the technology. And that's what we're doing, right? So we are still actively making new investments, but we're also staying in very close contact with our existing portfolio. We're fortunate. You know, I'll say fortunate. I'm not going to say, you know, I don't know if it's lucky or good, but we haven't had any deals really implode on us in our existing portfolio. I will say we have seen some companies that were going out for venture debt have those term sheets just vaporize, you know, term sheets there to raise a significant round of venture debt and then get the phone call, oh, we've rebalanced our file and you're no longer suited to what we're doing. And so I think that has led to some of that belt tightening from the portfolio companies where they're saying, okay, well, we're thinking we could raise a venture debt to extend a runway. That's not going to happen. You know, let's look at equity. Let's look at internal operational changes we can make to extend the runway. I mean, I do think that everyone's sort of looking at the macro here and saying, look, what we need is some really good therapeutics and treatments and in the short term, a vaccine in the long term. And then we can really start thinking about getting back to business in the 12 to 18 month time cycle. So covering that next 12 to 18 months becomes super, super critical. We've seen, we were working on a few deals in two in particular, where they were kind of going out for say 10 to $12 million series A's, all of a sudden demand just evaporated and VCs that they were talking to, generalist VCs started to see their portfolios implode. They were in a lot of consumer enterprise type businesses that just were not suited. They didn't have great COVID market fit and then really sort of collapsed. I think there's a lot of crisis in a lot of different terms with their broader portfolio. And so they're kind of pulling back. And what we've seen is basically, okay, hey, let's step back and then do this as a bridge round, like a convertible note. Let's do something 4 million with the last round investors, bring new investors in. And we've sort of saw that as an opportunity because what we like the company, we have just like you guys, sort of 10-year time horizons by which you know, we're looking at the future. And if we can kind of come in at a discount at this point of what we would have been willing to pay two months ago, that's sort of still positive for us. Moving over to sort of trend impacts. Can I just ask a quick question on that? Think yeah, about yeah. some of those deals that you said have imploded now at those valuations they were today. Could you see a world where those investors would come back to those deals in a few months' time? Do you think it's like, we need to just stop making deals at this point, but we maybe we'll still be interested at a different valuation later down the line? Or do you think those deals are sort of dead in the water? I mean, I think there's just like tremendous amount of uncertainty. And so people are going to stick with their core. If you're a VC firm and you're really overly exposed and all of your portfolios, companies have just saw revenue drop 80, 90%, and you've had large valuations, things are maybe looking a little bleak right now. And so I just think these uncertainties have to sort of figure themselves out. There is a big component mm-hmm. of sort of say public market capital in there. And when those public markets have dropped, it makes people's appetite for venture less. They may have to sell at a loss to do venture deals. So I think we just need to some stability in the market. So at least people can make projections about what that future looks like. And I would say guys, even on valuation, I had the feeling that even before COVID 
that valuations were coming down kind of into 2019, you know, beginning in 2020. And I, I attributed that to just the cycle where a couple of years ago, there was a lot of optimism in some of these crop input technologies and they were raising capital at good valuations. And now that they're getting a little bit closer to the market, they're looking out there and they're saying, well, you know, maybe it wasn't as rosy as we were thinking. And so I've been seeing a little bit of a, I don't want to say like full on retrenching, but just like even prior to COVID, some reduction in round sizes, valuations that are maybe a flat or a step up, but not as dramatic as originally thought. And I do think that that's just going to be accelerated during this time as well. I don't know, Dave or Rob, if you guys were seeing that in the deals you were looking at. I think that there's been a shift from optimism to realism with respect to the commercialization of a lot of technologies, as Blake points out, just in the last couple of years, because there was this exuberance that took place. Maybe it was post-climate, but really just along with the bubble of venture capital and optimism that comes with that of more capital coming into the markets, where there could be really great technology and amazing crop input technology or what have you. But the ability to monetize that technology takes a couple of years to realize. And if it turns out that monetizing that technology comes in two years later, three years later, maybe 50% of the revenue forecast, suddenly it takes a couple of years to uncover that. And it takes a couple of years to say, even if this thing is 10 times better than anything in the market today, it's still hard to drive adoption commercially. It's still hard to get this thing in market. It's still hard to get through the regulatory approvals. And suddenly you're in year five, six, seven, and you're on series D, E, and F. And so there's a lot of that that I think, as Blake pointed out, has gone on in the last couple of years. And so we were kind of leaning into a world where folks, the first question that they're asking isn't, can you prove to me that the technology works? I totally believe biotech now. I believe what you guys can do. The first question I'm asking is, what's your go-to-market? How do you accelerate this? How do you get the revenue generated? And as a result, companies that don't have an ability to get it to market more quickly and accelerate commercial viability they're going to be challenged and there just aren't a lot of pickups happening. There's not a lot of ag input companies buying lots of tech companies. And so having advantage technology alone doesn't get you a great return on your investment. You have to have a great business to go with it. And so that I think is the primary function for a lot of ag tech startups right now is figuring out what's your business? How do you make money? How do you commercialize? Not just how good is your tech? I mean, I do think this time is going to be a period where you clean out some marginal companies which then leaves you with some companies who have been working through these problems for several years. And for somebody to upstart from standing stop and try to catch up to you, it becomes very difficult. So if you have a unique product into year three, four, or five, it becomes a very unique asset, right? And I do think that from an acquisition perspective, that there's probably more potential acquirers out there than there are assets to be attractive to. And I don't think they're just going to buy because it affects their P&L. A lot of these particular digital technologies have relationships, disintermediating relationships with the customer that these other seed companies and chemical companies are going to need to have. I'm somewhat optimistic about, at least still the long term, about the acquisition environment. And I think if capital markets come back, private equity is still, there's so much capital shifting from public markets to private equity. I do think that there's, it would have been unimaginable a decade ago to see so many quote unquote unicorn companies because there just wasn't that much private capital in the market. Recognizing the challenges in public markets, there's more of an arbitrage opportunity, you know, asymmetric advantages in private markets. So I believe we're going to still see this capital coming into the private markets when then still creates an opportunity to build big private companies without having to prematurely sell. 
Uh, sell yourselves. I've got a question uh, go here. And also, I'd love to get into some of the different categories within agri-food tech and how demand for those technologies are going to change now and which of those technologies are going to be more important considering the challenges that the food and agriculture space is facing. So a question that we had was, are there any ag funder companies, but it could be companies in any of your portfolios that have seen their opportunities increase during COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely had both portfolio companies and companies that we know well see increased demand. I think there's a mismatch in the supply chain right now. And so there's companies that can help meet that, that are seeing a demand on even just like vegetable seeds, for example, that's gone way up. Now we have a company, Hazel Technologies, which is a shelf life stabilization company. And clearly right now, shelf life is a very critical thing in the supply chain because it's challenging to get food from the field to the store and then from the store to the individual. And then one company here in Research Triangle that we've always been excited about and we know well, not technically in our portfolio, is a company called Advanced Animal Diagnostics. And they looked at their cattle diagnostic program, which turns out could actually help potentially diagnose COVID-19. And one thing that's super cool about it is because it was designed for cattle, it's very cheap and it's very robust. And so if you think of mass testing of people, which was not their market, it needs to be cheap and robust. And so that's something they're exploring really quickly to see if there's an opportunity there. So, so definitely some bright spots, both in our portfolio and outside as well. Dave, anything standing out for you guys? You know, we're on the board and investors in a company called Soylent, which has had tremendous success because Soylent offers the lowest cost per meal of any food source. So we have a complete nutrition powder meal product. And yeah, we've just sold out of inventory and had just incredible demand. Uh, people sitting at home looking to pay $1.50 a meal. There's no other way to get $1.50 a meal in a powder that you could store anywhere in an, in an apartment, you know, small space. So that business has seen incredible demand. We have another business called Norquin, which is the largest quinoa producer, I think, in the world. And certainly in North America, we're based up in Canada. And so every Costco in the country sold out of quinoa. And so we've got a robust supply chain in that we have tons of inventory and we can move stuff into the US pretty quickly and easily to stock shelves. So we've seen incredible demand there as well. So I think just to Blake's point, just mismatches in supply and demand and being able to kind of fulfill these basic needs versus luxury needs. And so we've long been an investor in those sorts of companies. And I think that's paying off in this environment. Out of our alternative protein fund, we had invested in a company called Nugs, which sounds like the worst idea on the planet. It's mail order frozen plant-based chicken nuggets. And they would use this as to basically rapidly iterate with their customers and get feedback and create a new version. And then they would know exactly what zip codes their customers would be in the demographic. But all of a sudden, everyone wants food delivered. They want frozen food. And they've seen their sales shoot up 3x just sort of month over month very, very quickly. That's on one side. We're investors in a couple of robotics companies, Verdant Robotics and Root AI, and looking at a couple more, and there is a real fear around labor loss in farming. So the more people you have out there, the greater the number of vectors there is to sort of infect everybody. You can have sort of whole operations go down. They're still kind of in R&D pilot stage, but their customers went from, hey, let's get together next month to let's get together and get this contract down. And we want you guys out on the farm, in part because they don't want that these guys getting sort of poached by somebody else who moved much more quickly. So I think this is going to underscore a further drive towards automation and the weakness you have when you sort of rely on that labor 
And then on marketplaces, so you know, we're an investor in DHOT and WeFarm. So DHOT's operating out of India, WeFarm is operating out of Kenya. And so to, to your point, you're sort of rebalancing this supply chain, uh, food that was sort of directed to food service and restaurants and you know, schools is now sort of being routed and people are ordering different types of things. And so it kind of a very relationship-based pen and paper system doesn't deal with dynamic rebalancing very easily. And I think it's fair to say operationally, almost every company is struggling. Most of the companies in our portfolio and probably yours as well are in this position where they're operating under sort of essential services and businesses, but you've got only two people in the lab and you've got to keep six feet apart and all of these types of things. And have you guys seen any, obviously don't want to point anything out, but any sort of negative headwinds on some of your portfolio companies and maybe what sectors those might be in? Or are you guys pretty bullish or feeling pretty comfortable with them? Nothing fundamental. I mean, I think it's more of just this capital markets issue on like, how do you fund your projects with these longer sales and longer R&D cycles. But from a fundamental perspective, we're not investors or owners of any businesses that I would say are fundamentally challenged with some of the market changes in COVID. Yeah, I think what I'm tracking and trying to understand is really the companies that were thinking of raising what I consider a significant round in 2020. You know, let's say let's 50 million up or 60 million up and they haven't done it yet. Like, what does that look like? Because I'm expecting that so what we're in early Q2, you know, I think we'll still see some headlines about big rounds that get done last month, this month, because those have been in the works for six months beforehand. And so I think one thing that we're tracking very closely, and especially in the ag portfolio is like, all right, those that are planning and doing larger rounds, what happens Q3, Q4? And realistically, I expect that they're going to have to adjust. Maybe I'm being too pessimistic and that the large rounds still keep tracking along, but that's something that we're really tracking closely. I will say that businesses that are selling into or participating in the traditional restaurant ecosystem are challenged right now because there's uncertainty about what's going to happen with the restaurant industry going forward. There are benefits on the flip side to businesses that are in the direct-to-consumer kind of model. And I think that speaks broadly to a trend away from centralized supply chain systems. So any system that can go direct to a consumer doesn't have to go through a channel, doesn't have to go through a physical social channel, is going to benefit in this environment versus the ones that are selling into that traditional channel are being challenged. So I think we have seen a little bit of that from a fundamental perspective is the restaurant industry as we know it, anything that's retail as we know it is likely going to take a hit even over the midterm coming out of COVID. And how are you guys are comfortable? I've talked to a lot of VCs and a lot of them are just saying, look, I just can't do an investment over Zoom. I need to viscerally see and experience that entrepreneur. I need to go and make that on-site visit and walk around and see their lab and smell the earth. How will this affect your investment process for the next nine months? And do you plan on significantly cutting back? Are you saying, look, we're just going to shut it down until we have some certainty? How are you guys tacking on this? Because we're the strategic venture arm of Alexander Real Estate, I look at us as fantastic syndicate partners. We usually don't write the term sheet. And so from the face-to-face like site visit perspective, that's not something that concerns me too much in our deal flow process. So I do think that we'll still be able to continue our new deal investment activity during this time through Zoom. I've had, I mean, I'm sure everyone has, but every single phone call has turned into a video call, whether it would have been an in-person or a phone call before. So it's been great. So I'm actually having more video calls over the last month than I ever have which is pretty cool. So you do get to see the person, you do get to know them. So it's definitely something that we're able to continue, but I understand the sentiment, Rob. I can see it out there. And 
And Dave would like to get your perspective on that too. So yeah, just to be clear, we're not really an investor. We're primarily a foundry. So we start businesses and then we take those businesses after we funded them and they've run for some period of time, we go raise money from venture investors, strategic investors. So we are on the other side of the table where we are looking at a number of our businesses that are out there trying to raise capital. And we are having a lot of Zoom meetings, but most of our businesses are in the lab. There is some hard technology component or there is some hardware component or there is some lab demonstration that's really been hard to do over Zoom. So we haven't seen much success over Zoom and making progress with those businesses. Although we've done a lot of meetings that a lot of the companies have done meetings and done Zoom intros and gotten to know people and had as much diligence as you can get done. But I think that ultimate kind of level of comfort with a life sciences business or a hardware business is going to be hard to achieve outside of the physical visit. So on our side, I mean, we've always been fairly digitally native. And I think maybe 20% of our portfolio our investments were done over Zoom. We just got a video today. It was a 20-minute video of like, let's see the setup. Let's see the run-through of your lab. Let's see the equipment so that we can get some kind of hands-on visibility on what you guys are doing. Zoom, I think, also actually has advantages too, right? When you're in a live meeting with a founder, it's real-time. Things are moving quickly. You're trying to take notes and it's very hard. And then you say, hey, I had this great meeting. I don't remember many of the details, but here it is. And then, okay, then the next partner comes in and has a meeting and it just basically has the exact same meeting that you guys had before and has a similar experience. And what we've done is say, look, we'll record the meetings with the founders. And we say, look, we're going to record this. If we can kind of pass this on, then the rest of our team can get up to speed. Every meeting is building on the last one. And our team is very informed on what happened on those previous meetings. I feel like we can make a lot of progress. And when, frankly, when it comes down to starting writing out the deal memos. We've got a lot of great, solid information. We can stop, replay, understand that, really sort of structure our thought and try to press into that a little more. And so there's certainly trade-offs. It's great to meet somebody in person, but you don't have that record that you do when you do rely on those live conversations and mm-hmm. you know listen to it again. And it's like, was I just enchanted by the good looks <laughs> of that handsome or beautiful entrepreneur and was under their charismatic spell or was a real substance to what they were saying? So we definitely see a lot of advantages to that. And also, I mean, we invest internationally. So ag and food is a global business. Mm-hmm. If you're investing in just Silicon Valley, it's much easier to get those personal interactions. But if you're investing abroad, I think we just have to sort of get used to it. So I think this could be a bit of a shift that takes some venture capital outside of Silicon Valley because I think people will get used to, okay, we can work remotely. We can make remote investments. And so is there a requirement to have companies here? And that could also put pressure on valuation because a lot of that is salary costs and other things. So I think this is maybe a positive that'll come out of this event. I've got a few questions now from attendees, which is great. So one is, what is your perspective on agriculture trends that will fundamentally change even after we move out of the immediate COVID situation and which will go back to normal? And there's another question that's slightly similar is around how consumers are obviously not eating at restaurants. They might get more used to eating at home more often, and that could be a fundamental move to almost a more permanent shift potentially if people are eating out less because of this. So just thinking about that's one potential trend, but any other trends? Yeah, I, mean, I think the, the crisis that we're going through has really exposed a lot of inefficiencies in a lot of markets. I think we can look at healthcare for that. We can look at ag. And I think ag is, we touched on it earlier, is supply chain and labor. And healthcare, you read a lot about them, right? And 
you know, physicians who can't practice from state to state because they don't have a license. Well, that seems totally arbitrary, right? We're all humans, right? Why is someone in North Carolina different than someone in South Carolina? And I think we'll see the same thing in ag. Maybe there's some regulatory changes around labeling requirements or the ability for more flexibility and technologies that provide flexibility in the supply chain so you can service restaurants and commercial and direct to consumer. So I think those are both the trends that I see changing, but also areas that are ripe for innovation and investment. So the companies that are already there, hopefully will come out of this great on the other side. And then I'm sure there'll be some new good ideas during this crisis as well. I would add, there's an expectation here that hundreds of billions of dollars will be pushed into biotech. And there can be significant peace dividends then that come out of this for bioag tech. And I think that's an area that we may see a lot of fruitful veins coming out in the next sort of five years from all of this. I think two things are probably true. The first is post 9-11 and post global financial crisis, we saw an increase in regulatory burdens as a response to those crises and as a way to protect us from those crises happening again in the future. I think post-COVID, we're going to see the opposite, kind of to Blake's point, which is a reduction in regulatory burdens. And recognizing in this crisis, the incredible cost of a number of regulatory burdens that we just took for granted prior to the crisis. And so in order to more quickly get a vaccine to market, in order to more quickly approve treatments for use for certain diseases, in order for a variety of these things to happen more quickly, more efficiently, we are likely going to see a big reduction in regulatory burdens. And I think that's going to be a net-net benefit across the space. The second is, if you had a printer at home that could make anything you wanted, you probably wouldn't order stuff to be delivered to you from a factory or a warehouse. And if you try to order food to be delivered to your house on Amazon today in San Francisco, you cannot get an order. It's completely booked out for a week. And so Amazon, Whole Foods, delivery, Instacart delivery, they're all completely just blocked out. There's some model of some system. And so all the other stuff I wanted to buy at Amazon, I can't buy in San Francisco right now because they're prioritizing essential items. So the centralized supply chain of central production and then distribution is a significant challenge during times like this. And I think it's kind of exposing us to the opportunities that might arise by having a more distributed supply chain where points of production and then points of distribution are located more closely to the points of consumption. I was watching the uh, current wars last night. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie. It's about the Tesla, Edison, Westinghouse battle of AC versus DC, right? And Edison put these DC plants and the cost of actually doing this was much higher because they had to put more of them in the cities and the population was low. AC was better because you could centralize it and then you could do broad transmission. So that worked well until population density got to a point. Now everyone's putting their own solar panels on their roof and having their own battery system. And so I think the same may be true of the food system at some point where density is such in the United States and economic purchasing power is such now that we may end up seeing a massive shift towards a distributed supply chain model where you actually see local production and local distribution closer to the points of consumption. And the results of that from an opportunity perspective are pretty profound and it'll create a lot of business opportunity in this space. Just to speak to that, Singapore has already been investing a lot in sort of indoor growing because of food security issues. And this has actually been made really manifest. There's been travel restrictions in Malaysia. And so they're really coming out and saying, look, we need to solve this. So food security, a few big actors can start to bring capital into this market and then tips over to make it economical and make it interesting for other players to think about local food Mm -hmm. production systems. 
Um, I've got another question. They're coming in thick and fast now, so I'll just keep going with those. <laughs> How should we invest in food and ag to reduce the risk for the next pandemic? I, mean, I think what I mentioned earlier is just key to me. We're spending a lot of time, and we thought about this prior to the COVID pandemic, is just more distributed production, more distributed distribution, and that you could have a protein printer in every city that just makes all the proteins you need, right? I mean, there's just a lot of ways that this can manifest to meet demand. So this is mitigating the impact of another pandemic as opposed to actually... Yeah, you're effectively reducing points of failure Mm -hmm. and creating a robustness in the supply chain. Globalization, I think, is going to be challenged by the response to COVID, especially with US-China trade relations. That's certainly going to hurt the agricultural markets and the commodity markets. I think we should expect that trade challenges will ensue following the response to COVID and the new politicization of uh, the COVID crisis being created by China and the US and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. And so I think creating a more robust supply chain nationally is going to become a priority for every country as globalization kind of recedes a little bit. It's scary, but it's also going to create investment opportunities around the world. I'm just going to keep moving on if that's okay. So we've got two questions that are almost at opposite ends of each other. One is, Do you think investors who've committed a lot to agri-food tech in recent years might pivot to less tech-focused agri-food investment opportunities? And on the flip side, someone was saying that they disagreed with your notion around business models being key, Dave, that they think there's so much uncertainty with COVID that really it's more important to focus on developing the technology and we don't know what the business models will ultimately look like a year from now. I hope that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But comments on this idea of investing in other parts of agri-food and do you see that that would be important to invest potentially not in as much in the technology, but in other parts across the food chain? I mean, look, there's a lot of traditional private equity investors or fund investors that started doing tech investing in ag and food that were traditional ag food investors, right? And that the tech stuff kind of created this alpha layer that they could kind of have some participation in with their portfolios. I think with portfolio allocations shifting as they are with 0% interest rates, you could see a reduction in exposure to tech. You could see the opposite. So the dynamics are going to be a result of what the rest of that LP or investors or capital allocators portfolio probably looks like. Blake, you probably have a better point of view on this than I do. Well, I mean, we historically invested across the whole agri-food tech spectrum with a focus on upstream technologies. I think Dave, I think it's to your point about the business model, and I guess I would agree with you there, especially in the tech space. I think what this is proving is that the hopeful business model to build it and build the user base, and it's going to work out as long as we can keep growing. Again, I think that they were having trouble before COVID, and then COVID just knocked them out. And I think that going forward, you're going to see harder questions about, well, what does this look like in the long term? And how do you get to revenue quickly? How do you grow that revenue quickly and profitably? I've always thought that in ag tech, the, or agri-food tech, financial risk was the highest risk. And I've done a lot of life science investing. And I never felt that financial risk was the highest risk in a biotech deal. But in ag tech, I felt that. And I think that that's even more so today. And so that's where I think the business model, the revenue generating, the profitability is key and probably becoming more critical. On my end, look, I'm very bullish on tech in general. I think you've got sort of three ways to make money. It was globalization, it was professionalization of management, and it was technological advantage that opens new markets or creates new efficiencies. And the 20th century was really about professionalization of management and globalization. I kind of feel that those have largely been arbitraged away, which leaves you with only one other way to make money, create something new and of value. And so fundamentally, I believe that the 21st century 
tech plays an enormous and outsized role. So I'm going to take the bullish take here and, and say in 10 years, we're going to look back and say, we had been under investing into tech because that's where the future profits will be. So now you do need a good business model. It's not just tech. It's what problem does right. that solve? We touched on this a little bit, but just coming back to it again, do you think that farm labor will change from low paid, heavy labor activity to indoor, more tech related labor? And I'm just going to add on what kind of time frame there. We're very... Yeah, we've been very excited about indoor ag for quite a while and continue to be. And I think, again, it just, we're on the panel together, but I am going to agree with Dave again on, on pulling that, the source of the food, the source of the growing in closer to the population density will provide better security in the long run. So it's not going to replace traditional ag, but we're very excited about indoor ag. And I do think that will continue to grow. And we've already seen, and you guys at AgFunder had a nice article about some of the overseas investment activity into indoor ag to really help shore up their food security, which makes sense. And I think that will continue at a rapid pace. If you look at it on a per unit basis of per calorie consumed, right? So about 75% of human calories come from rice, wheat, and potatoes. And then about 15% come from animal protein, which is effectively corn and soybeans converted into animal protein. So only about 10% comes from what we can call kind of specialty crops. Rice, wheat, potatoes, corn, and soybeans are largely machine labor. And so I would argue we all talk about the labor problem in agriculture. When we talk about that, we're often referring to these specialty crops, tomatoes and lettuce and other special things that are grown mostly in California today and increasingly in indoor farming systems. But we don't have a labor problem in terms of feeding humans. We have a labor problem in terms of some of those luxury categories of specialty foods that humans like to eat that middle-class Americans can afford to pay for. So I don't think that like our food supply chain is dependent on labor and that there's necessarily a critical need there. There's certainly going to be some value and some advantages in those specialty markets. But in terms of like society surviving and humans persisting and so on, I think we're good. We've got a lot of machines that do a lot of the work for us already in generating calories. I've got a question going back to thinking about VC as, as the investment platform for investing in tech. Since investors have to walk away from deals that are on the table due to COVID-19 or transform deals into bridge rounds or reduce valuations, how do you look at restoring trust between the investors and the entrepreneurs as trust is the base of success? Good question, Edwin. Yeah. So, I mean, look, if you walked away from a term sheet, these are handshake deals and your reputation does carry. And I think people have a memory Word gets around. So you just, I think as a firm, at least you need to look at your reputation on this. So you could take a short-sighted view and say, look, yeah, we're just going to rip this up. But that could create some long-term disadvantage. And, and venture capital is a reputation market, right? You have structural advantage because it's not sufficient to see the deal. You have to have the founders want you in the deal. So it really depends on where you are with the process. But I think everyone's accepting there is a new reality. Capital is more scarce. And you can come to terms that are maybe more fair. The entrepreneur certainly has benefited uh, the last you know, two, three years and we're more able to dictate terms. And I think that's rebalanced a bit now. Major food manufacturers and others were investing heavily in sustainability. Is that out of the door now? And I think there's been quite a lot of comment around, you know, ESG was the big phrase of January and is focus on those sorts of things going to disappear now? You know, a consumer is not going to worry so much about where their food is coming from. They just want to get it, make sure they're getting what they want. I think on the optimistic side of that, you can make an argument that by living through a crisis that really exposed some fundamental issues 
in our various systems. Yeah, I can be hopeful that as consumers, we come out of this and we're just more aware and more concerned about things like sustainability and supply chain and efficiencies. And we can have broader conversations around that and look at climate change next and say, well, wait a minute, we weren't prepared for this. Doesn't look like we're prepared for that. How do we get prepared for that? So maybe I'll take the optimistic view and say that we could come out of this on the other side where general consumers are more interested in sustainability and changing the existing dynamic to prepare for the future. I don't know. Maybe that's too optimistic, Rob, Dave, but what do you guys think? (laughs) I mean, 30% unemployment, it's kind of hard to make a more expensive choice in my food decisions. So I think a large part of what I would call the luxury food market is going to recede. I definitely think sustainability labeled stuff and ESG labeled stuff is a pay more and feel better about what you're paying for model. It is a luxury model. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's what it is. And so Mm. I think luxury markets in general, especially food luxury markets are going to retreat for a while. But what about Uh, the food and agriculture companies that have been investing in more sustainable practices? Do you think that that will continue? I think those guys have bigger problems to deal with. You know, I'm assuming the priorities are going to shift over there. There's a lot going on at Unilever and Kraft and all the ingredients companies in terms of keeping facilities open and not letting them shut down with COVID positive people working there and figuring out how to load up on the priority products in the supply chain. There's just a lot that they're going to have to deal with. There's only so many people there. So I'm not sure that this kind of like expansion strategy is going to be a priority for them coming out of COVID. But we'll see. We are just about out of time. I'd just love to get all the attendees to put their attention on the poll that I've got out about next episodes that we want to put out. I see lots of you have voted. Thank you so much. There were some questions we haven't managed to answer. I will try to get back to you with some answers and ask the panelists here to give me their thoughts so that you will have some views on that. And also we'll be putting an article out as a recap of this session. So thank you all so much. Did any of you want to have a final word before we finish? I mean, I would just want to just reiterate, we fundamentally, ag tech, it's been deemed an essential business kind of across the board. And so both on the real estate side, we're making sure we're keeping our facilities running. And on the venture side, we're making sure we're keeping our venture activities running because it is essential and there's going to be lots of changes and there's going to be some wins and losses. But I think we'll come out of this and really be in a strong place. On our end, we continue to invest and look at opportunities. There's certainly a slowdown in pace or certain macro considerations, certainly around financing risk that we're definitely looking at, but also seeing, look, we recognize that valuations are dropping, that these tend to be good opportunities to invest and build those relationships with those founders. We've decided to add a second close to our last fund three to sort of create a little bit more diversity and invest in and through this period and make sure we're sort of well capitalized to do that. Great. Well, thank you all so much. And I hope everyone stays safe and healthy. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.